0: This is Circulating Ideas, episode 210. My name is Steve Thomas, and my guest today is Paul Signorelli. He is the author of the new book, Change the World, using social media. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from Candlewick Press, Syndetics Unbound, and listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. And don't forget to sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. The link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Candlewick Press, publisher of Book Buddies, Ivy, Lost and Found, the first of a charming new early chapter book series about library toys and the children who borrow them, written by Newbery honoree Cynthia Lord and illustrated by Stephanie Gregan. In a starred review, Booklist called Ivy, Lost and Found an engaging story of insecurity overcome by hop, courage, and love. Ivy is the library's newest book buddy, a toy that can be checked out just like a book but she'd rather go back to being what she was before, the librarian's favorite childhood doll. So when Fern, a child with a new stepfamily who also wishes she could go back to the way things were, takes Ivy home, they embark on an adventure together that helps both of them find confidence and belonging in their changing worlds. I, Steve, personally found this book very delightful. Uh, The story by Cynthia Lord, of course, is fantastic, and the illustrations by Stephanie Gregan, I had not seen anything by her before. I like them very much, and I will be looking out for her work in the future. Uh, There's a little bit of shades of Toy Story 2 here, so get your tissues out at some point. (laughs) Um, But very good story. So Ivy Lost and Found is available now. And look for upcoming books in the Book Buddies series coming in spring 2022. This episode is also brought to you by Syndetics Unbound from ProQuest and LibraryThing. Syndetics Unbound helps public and academic libraries enrich their catalogs and discovery systems with high interest elements, including cover images, summaries, author profiles, similar books, reviews, and more. Synthetics Unbound encourages serendipitous discovery and higher collection usage and was awarded Platinum Distinction in the Library Works 2021 Modern Library Awards. To learn more about Synthetics Unbound, visit Synthetix.com, S-Y-N-D-E-T-I-C-S.com. While there, be sure to visit the Synthetix Unbound blog for news and analysis, including a breakdown of library's top titles and other stories of interest to the library community. Again, that's Syndetics.com to learn more about today's sponsor, Syndetics Unbound. Paul Signorelli, welcome back to Circulating Ideas after a decade.
1: I know so little has happened, Steve. <laughs> I wish I had more to report, but I'm still where I was last time. <laughs> In fact, I still got the same sandwich on my desk here. You part part of it? Uh,
0: I don't think so. We could examine that to see if there's any COVID cures growing on that sandwich at this point. But <laughs> If I had a decade-old sandwich right now, it would cure something. <laughs> Well, you've got a new book out called Change the World Using Social Media, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we do, the last time you were on the show, you were with Lori Reed, so we didn't really get into you guys personally all that much. So can you tell the listeners how you got involved with the library field in the first place?
1: I'm a lifelong admirer and user of libraries, and I never in my wildest dreams imagined I would have an opportunity to work in them. I had a period where I was out of work, gave myself six months because I was very lucky to have the resources to be able to do that. I was trying to reinvent myself from what I'd been doing into something else. Among the dozens of things I saw and applied for was a position with San Francisco Public Library to be their first ever director of volunteer services. It's the funniest story, Steve. I put that in, and later that day, I get a phone call from somebody in their HR office. We got your application. We just have a question for you. I said, sure. The question is, why did you wait so long to apply? I said, well, frankly, I saw it this morning. I filled it out. I hopped on the bus here in town, dropped it off. And that's how fast I respond. He says, well, it's been out there for five or six weeks. And we're almost at the deadline. I said, well, unless that's an issue, I'm glad I'm in. But that's why I just saw it. That's, that's how I start. That was the foothold into
0: getting into libraries. And also a lot of the other things that I've been doing. It was a magnificent change. Great. So your book is called Change the World Using Social Media. What led you to want to write this book in the first place? Oh, it's the craziest thing. I've been involved in two books, as you mentioned. The first one with
1: Laurie and this one. You get these emails and phone calls you never forget. In September, it must have been around 2017, I got an email saying, oh, we see that you're doing a class for the American Library Association on social media, and we're wondering if you would turn that into a book. Now, you have to understand, I've got a lot of friends who love practical jokes. So my first reaction says, who would want to turn a class into a book? There's got to be a joke. So I went online and realized, well, oh, this is from a real publisher. What do I do now? So, did some quick research, wrote back and played it as straight as I could say, Oh, I'd, be, I'd love to talk to you if you want to set up an appointment. Be happy to discuss the possibility of doing that book for you. That was on a Friday. And the following Monday, we had a three way conversation. The acquisitions editor, Charles Harmon, who I will mention repeatedly in this conversation because he's just a Princeton editor, just the most supportive person you could want to work with. But the three of us got into a half hour call talking about the possibility of transferring an existing course into a book. And by the end of it, Charles had asked enough astute questions to realize that that was an okay idea for me. But if he really wanted to get my interest, we would go something broader because my interest had changed since that class first started. And that's how the idea of doing a much broader thing on social media in terms of social change came about. It was my saying, I want to go bigger. And he saying, well, how about this? And I'm like, you would pay me to do that? And the answer was yes. So that's how the book came about. Both times I was not trying to sell books at that point in terms of pitching ideas. I am the worst pitcher in the whole world. I've pitched dozens of dozens of things. I wrote a few unpublished novels that never got anywhere. Still hold on to them hoping for the day where they get discovered. But in both cases, people came to me and said, Would you do this? And I'm thinking, you're asking me? Well of course I would do that. So that's how the book started.
0: And what was that course that you were teaching at ALA about?
1: It was an introductory social media course that has evolved over the years. I do it about once or twice a year at this point. And each time we look at the state of social media, we look at what people are doing with communications and just up our game a little bit. But the initial one was just based on the idea that so many librarians knew about social media, but hadn't the foggiest idea of what the different platforms were, how to use them. So the initial one was basically a baby version of social media. Here's how you start a Twitter account. Here's how you start a LinkedIn account and a few other things. And as it's evolved over the years, you've gotten much more complex in it about, I'll give you the first five minutes of how to set up those accounts. What we're really going to talk about is how are people using them today? What are the preconceptions we have? And how can we alter those to better serve the communities we work in? So it's gotten much more beyond the idea of here's social media and how you use it to here's social media. And let's put that in the background and say, with those tools, what do we want to accomplish? So the book came along just the right time. I was going to another one of those transition periods of thinking, what am I doing with social media? How can I help the learners I'm working with? And Charles offered that opportunity to really explore it in depth. That is as a funny part of that, we finally signed a contract, I think toward the end of 2017. I literally started writing the first chapter on January 1st of 2018. First couple of things were so easy because it was immersed in it. And I knew that as we went further into it, it would be more complex and the writing process would slow down. The first couple chapters were banged out in about six weeks. The deal I had with Charles was, I'm not going to wait and turn in a completed manuscript. I'm going to send you stuff as soon as I get a chapter completed so that we could fine-tune it as we go. And then down the road, save editing time and rewriting time. Six weeks into it, this thing you may have heard of happened in Parkland, where the students were in a classroom. And that whole thing just blew up, literally, when the survivors, who were magnificent students, far beyond the wisdom of the usual high school students' years, turned that tragedy six weeks later into March for Our Lives with 563 simultaneous marches all over the world. I was about in the early stages of chapter three, which I think is on Twitter. I have to look at the table of contents right now. but I was far enough into this at that point to say, this is a different world we're seeing here with these students. So I slowed down a little bit and started re-examining what I was doing. And that was going to be a six-month writing project into almost two years. There were points where Charles was just shaking his head and going, are you ever going to finish? I'm saying, yeah, I'm going to finish. But this got complex, far beyond what I imagined. And I want to embrace that complexity because that's going to make the book something worth reading. So that's how it all got started. And it, it was a very interesting writing process. Finally, with Charles getting desperate, saying, you know, we're going to have to pull the plug on this. If you can't finish it. No, I understand. I just banged through that finally. But very interesting writing project and, and transformative for me, too. I hope it is for the readers.
0: So for the purposes of this book and this discussion, how would you define social media? Social media
1: is that beast that allows us to interact with each other in two-way conversation or multiple streams of conversation. It gives us the ability to exchange ideas, hopefully at a higher level rather than a lower level. Unfortunately, as you and I both know, much of what's out there is very low level. and That's the kind of stuff we want to avoid. But to me, it's it's those two words right together. It's social. It's people communicating with each other and trying to get to the heart of whatever they're talking about in a way that promotes positive change, hence the the focus of that particular book. And then media, of course, it changes at the drop of a hat. Media, as we all know, 50, 60 years ago was an old photograph on black and white TV. It is amazing. And it's interesting to me to just see every day, every month, every year, how the whole definition of social and media evolve. That's what's fascinating to me, that it's not a stagnant thing at all
0: it's still changing so much that even just the publication of the book since then, I mean, I don't think you talk about TikTok really in the book.
1: TikTok was out there as I was finishing up the book, but it was not something at the point where I was finishing the book that I thought was going to tie into training, teaching and learning, which again was, focused oh, what we were talking about
0: it there. Yeah. And now it's this huge thing. And it also leads to things like even if you don't use that particular tool, it can shift the whole industry. Okay, now we're talking about video. So we're moving away from text and we're now we're doing video. And maybe we can do some longer videos that are more informational. But I've seen some TikTok stuff that's educational too. So there's ways to use all this. Stuff. Well, I wish I could remember a name, but about the time you're talking
1: about the book was about to go into the editor's hands and really turn into cement rather than a bowl of jello. there was this wonderful teacher who did something that went viral on TikTok. It was about a 17 second video. And she's a ukulele teacher. says, I'm dealing with COVID. You know, I'm paraphrasing here. She does it much more cleverly in 17 seconds. But she's just sweet. She says, you know, I've been thinking about COVID and I thought I'd write a little song that would allow me to express my feelings on this. So here I go. And she strums a couple of chords and she just lets out this screeching, piercing scream. Now that's something I can embrace. That really captures the essence of TikTok and what we're doing and teaching training learning because just when you think you've got it nailed, something else comes along and you want to let that little curdling screech that she lets out. Um,
0: So when there is these new platforms, and obviously there's going to be new things happening all the time, technology is always moving and shifting and changing, whether it's TikTok or even something like Discord or Twitch or all these different things. How does an organization like a library figure out if this is something that's going to be useful to them in their mission?
1: The counsel I've given people, the counsel I follow myself is, find something that really appeals to you and play with it a little bit, but don't try to try everything that comes out. Don't try to become an expert in it. One of the big questions I think we overlook in our choice of social media platforms is if we are working for a library or working for any other organization, first question is, are our users even using that platform? There's no point in us building library training programs or training programs in any other industry, for that matter, around a platform where... We and our colleagues in the training department may be the only people who are using it. So the first thing I always ask if I'm going to look at something new is who else do I know is using that thing and how are they using it? So I start playing with things. I was very slow to come to some platforms and I'm totally immersed in it now. There are others where they came and the day I heard about them, I just jumped into them because they made so much sense to me. Ask yourself what it adds to your mix that you don't already have. And then ask yourself, are other people using it? If the people you want to reach are using it, then that's a good sign that you want to at least explore it. If you're the only one doing it, then it's one of those things you explore in your own time to have some fun with it. Put it in the back. I mind mind that it's a tool out there, but you don't jump into it until you're ready to jump into it. I'll look at a lot of different things that come up. I probably got into Twitter four or five years after it
0: started. I found uh, Twitter especially useful in the earlier days of being a lot of professional development, professional networking, stuff like that. I mean, it really helped with this podcast of meeting people and finding out about people and then relaying that into a conversation at a conference.
1: To this day, I still find Twitter to be one of my tours where 3 go to places. I'm not as active. I haven't been as active over the last couple of months for a variety of personal reasons, but Twitter to me is one of those things I will keep going back to just because I think it's such a useful tool. And one thing I still love is the tweet chats when they're well-moderated. I keep thinking about what was said. I go back and look at some resources that were mentioned. And it's because the people there, A, moderated well, and B, bring stuff to the table that you and I are not going to find on our own. That's the brilliance of doing a tweet chat. That's what I really enjoy.
0: I know that this book is not exclusively written for librarians. Um, I think that other people can get value out of this. But do you feel like librarians should be activists? And does that fit into the library's overarching mission?
1: I'm going to label myself as being way out on an extreme wing of this particular topic and say, absolutely. I do see the long term commitment to being unbiased and putting out all sides of an issue through library materials as an integral part of what we do. And then I think there is an element of this. I think Dave Lanky is probably fully on board with this. I- talked to Dave a number of times. I read much of what he writes. My sense of Dave is thinking that librarianship is more than just putting out a bunch of stuff and then stepping back and letting people see it. There is an activist phase to it. As I wrote the book and as I continue to work with librarians and library users across the country when I'm able to travel, just picking up a little bit again. The beauty of what we do in libraries is we are putting out information and we are at some level trying to make change in our community at a positive level. Even if we say we will give you all sides of an issue that we're capable of giving you. That in itself is the statement that we think is important to put information in people's hands and foster that process of helping people make the most reasonable decision they can for themselves. And that is a double-edged sword, of course. Somebody who's very conservative will have one set of needs that we need to meet. Somebody who's very liberal will have a different set of needs. And our thing is not to say we prefer this over that, even though we know and we need to acknowledge where our own political beliefs are. But the beauty of what we do is that we reach those different groups. John Kraska, I think it was from Every Library, told a story a few years ago about somebody who was in the library and it put out a variety of books on a variety of different viewpoints on a particular topic. And for that particular community, most people were on one side of the issue. So the display of books suddenly became very unbalanced because all the ones that represented that particular viewpoint were out of the library, off the shelf, leaving the impression that the library was only promoting one point of view. So somebody that John knew contacted, I've got a terrible problem. I'm being accused of being biased on the materials I put out. And it's because of this. He described what I just described to you. And John's answer was the most simple and lovely answer, which is, Tell people that. When they start complaining, tell them that that's why it's going and it's a good sign of how the community works. The librarian who approached John did that and who defused the situation. I think it's a lovely description of what we do. We are activists, whether we want to admit it or not, In libraries it's far beyond that.
0: Yeah, we make choices. Sometimes not making a choice is making a choice. Absolutely. Um, what we have in our collections is a choice. Some people can call it, I, I don't call it censorship, but I know some people would call it censorship. But You have to make choices. Even if your goal would be to completely objectively do whatever, number one, we can't be objective because we're not objective creatures. But even if that was your goal, we don't have unlimited budget and you don't have unlimited space. You have to decide what can fit on your shelves. And it's also going to be different no matter where you are because you have to know your community. So you want to reflect your community and not exclusively to where they don't get other ideas coming in, but Generally, if they want to read mysteries, you want to have mysteries on the shelf. If they cook a lot, you want to have a lot of cookbooks. There's lots of things where you have to just pay attention to what's going on around you.
1: I totally agree with that. We're never going to win because people who are hardcore in one point of view and do not want to hear anything else, if they perceive that the library or any other institution is leaning a particular way, they're going to be vocal about it. And we just have to be big boys and big girls and say I understand what you're saying. Here's what we're trying to do. We will order more copies of what you want because that's our responsibility. We're listening to you. And I think that's part of the communication thing. We just have to keep assuring people we are listening. We'll do our best to meet those needs, but we're not perfect. Bear with
0: us. I am very much in team libraries are not neutral. Yeah.
1: It's a lovely idea that there could be anything in our particular time period that would be neutral.
0: And that's not an idea I subscribe to. Social media, Facebook mostly, and then Instagram and Twitter after that, they encourage and reward engagement. And of course, the best engagement, (laughs) the most engagement you're going to get is harmful and negative because nothing gets people riled up and they want to keep fighting back and forth. So how can libraries or other institutions who are using social media or even individuals avoid that trap while at the same time using those algorithms for good? (laughs)
1: One thing is at that moment when you're most feeling beleaguered and you are most under attack, you do the counterintuitive thing of stepping back and taking a breath before you respond. I think that's a very important part of this. Social media, by its nature, demands that we respond immediately, and we all have kind of got that expectation. If we put something out and somebody doesn't respond in five or ten seconds, we want to start taunting them, saying, "Oh, you're afraid of me. You're chicken. You don't want to do anything." And you have to fight that urge to get in there. A great rule of thumb I learned many years ago, and I wish I could tell you who taught me this, but it was when I was still at San Francisco Public Library. So this is a good 15 or more years ago. The, The guidance was when you're about to respond to something, especially on social media, but anywhere, before you respond, you ask yourself, if that ends up on the front page of my hometown newspaper tomorrow, would I be okay with that? And if your answer is no, then you stop and you rethink what you're going to do that's a hard lesson that most people have well, not yet learned. I say most people just off the top of my head. I don't have research to prove that, but I would say that the average person wants to respond right away and then dust off their heads and say, see, I told you, which is the worst thing you can do because then you're stuck with it. There is no way ever to retract something. Even if you immediately delete your tweet or if you do anything to take it off any other platform you put it on, somebody will have copied it and will keep putting it out there. So the answer here is be a little patient, be a little circumspect, and take that time that our particular time period doesn't encourage us to take. When you take that step back, then you can start being more mature in this and you can respond in a more reasonable way. The whole thing of how do you deal with this? How do we bring social media up to a higher level and reach its potential in a positive way? Part of it is taking time, not taking it personally, no matter how personal it obviously is or how personal it feels. And only putting that stuff out there that we can live with and be Proud and comfortable with, that's a big step for a lot of people. I'm not perfect at it. I try to be, and I try to follow that advice. When I get most angry and want to respond to something, I'm saying, "You know, it's time to take a walk." I had a boss when I was working in museums many, many years ago who was just the nicest guy, a really bright guy. This was a small town museum in, in Monterey, California. Here, right on the coast, beautiful little place. But my boss, Tom, faced a lot of controversy for the kind of shows he would bring in. And one day we had the most lovely conversation. I said, Tom, how do you deal with that pressure? He says, you know, on a bad day, I'll just leave my office for a few minutes, go out into the galleries, look at some of the art on the walls, and I come back feeling better. I said, Tom, what do you do on a not so easy day like that? And again, talking about the geography of Monterey, where you have the main street, Alvarado Street, which is about five or six blocks long. He said, I'll go out of the buildings for 15 or 20 minutes, walk up and down Alvarado Street, and I'll come back in. At that point, I wasn't going to give up because I really wanted to get to the heart of it. So Tom, on those days when just everything is awful and you feel like people are calling you your resignation and you really don't want to be there anymore, then how do you deal with it? Tom was not going to be daunted. His answer without a thought was, Oh, on those days, I just walked to Salinas, which of course is about 20 or 30 miles away. And I thought, this is the kind of guy I want to emulate throughout my career. This is what we need to do on social media. On those bad days, we just turn off Twitter, we turn off Facebook, and we walk to Salinas or the equivalent in our own community. That's who we have to be. The basic thing we're talking about here, Steve, is the idea that we cannot let social media control us. It is a tool. It's not the guiding light. And when it is directing us, we need to take a deep breath and step back from it. There are great people that I admire who talk about taking social media fasts. There was one guy who's a professor here at one of the schools in San Francisco who half a decade or more ago was talking one day at a presentation I went to about how you deal with social media and how you pull back. And he was doing an experiment with some of the social media students. The challenge was go as long as you can turning everything off and let's see how far that can go. I think he was leading a semester-long social media class. And as he was doing a presentation on that to a bunch of us over at the San Francisco Public Library, he asked us, so how long do you think the shortest period was for the person that could stay off the least period of time? And how long do you think passed for the longest person in that particular experiment? None of us got it right. The shortest was two or three hours for somebody which was kind of astonishing to a lot of us. And the longest was about three days. This professor obviously had great relationships with his students, had an open door to them, so he could see what was going on over those three or four days when this whole experiment played out. He says, people would come in and say, I don't know what to do without my social media. I come like, on the bus going across San Francisco, and I'm not sure what to do. And the guy said, oh, "Why don't you look out the window and see what's out there as you're going. Oh, okay we get so immersed in this. we think that if we're away from it for a few hours, the world will end and we will not know about it. Well, I got news for you. If the world ends, you're going to know about it. It's going to be the last thought you have and you don't need to worry about that. But it was a brilliant experiment. It, it has guided me and my own social media. I do try at least a half a day a week. I'll go to bed on Saturday night as late as I can push the envelope, but I'll try not to turn on anything until midday, like noon or later on a Sunday. So now I've just outed myself. Anybody that wants to say something mean about me and not have me respond immediately, you do that between about midnight and Saturday night, Pacific time, mind you, and assume I'm not going to see it until noon or later. There are exceptions, but that's a minimum I try to do just to take a breather. And people look out in my backyard, look at the trees and the plants, listen to the birds, look at the people I'm around, have brunch with somebody without looking down at a tablet or a phone. And it's wonderful. Really, COVID killed that because Saturdays now, outing myself with my schedule here, I hope people don't take advantage of this, but Saturdays. Since COVID started, a small group of us used to meet at a diner here in San Francisco. We went online with our brunches. So we do virtual brunches from our own homes. there's a friend of mine in Washington, D.C. that I just adored. And as COVID got worse and worse, we started doing Saturday evening things. So now my Saturdays, in a very lovely way, I'll run out and get something at a, a local restaurant so we don't have to cook. We just bring the food back and then we log on with this group. We have brunch together for a couple of hours and we have about a three-hour break. And my wife and I are then in the afternoon and early evening on another two or three-hour conversation. But it's not this terrible stereotypical thing of people saying, oh, I spent all my time online. It's just that's the tool. But the way we carry on the conversation is what you and I are doing now. I, I'm assuming the viewers don't know that you and I could see each other because we're using Zoom for the recording. But I don't think you're thinking about the fact you're on Zoom right now. You're thinking about the fact we're having a conversation. And that's how it is with my friends and I. When we do those kind of Saturday long conversations, it doesn't matter what the setting is. We still engage at a very human level and have the kind of conversations we were having face-to-face, which takes me full circle to something I believed for a long time, and I think we're just beginning to catch up with it. People have ignored the idea that the concept of face-to-face has changed radically, given the introduction of Google Meet, Skype changed the world for a lot of us. When we realized you could have that level of engagement, it took a lot of practice, mind you. When you could get that level of engagement online, it just changed the whole thing. So now when I talk about face-to-face, it's like face-to-face physically and face-to-face online. To me, there's very little difference when the conversations go at the level you and I are doing this now, where we can see each other. It does to me as I look at the screen and block out everything in my peripheral vision, I'm with you, Steve. And that's something a lot of us don't realize. That's a massive, wonderful tool if you recognize that and take full advantage of the possibilities there. You have to ask yourself, for those of us who have got comfortable with this level of online interaction, what would you rather do? Have the kind of conversation you and I are having where we don't have to wear our mask, We're comfortable. We can see and hear each other. And the level of conversation, for better or for worse, is what it always was. Would you rather have that or would you rather be wearing masks and garbage bags over your body, spray Lysol on yourself every five seconds. I would love to think there's going to be a time, and I'm sure at some point, COVID will somehow get under control. We will be back to what I hope will be a new and better normal rather than just trying to go back to what we had before. But this is part of our transition period. And for those that are totally frozen by it, that's a tragedy. That is a tragedy to me that rivals the massive loss of life that we've seen in this, because it's a massive loss of social interaction. That's the heart of what we do for those of us that made the transition. And like I said, it was pretty easy for me because much of my work had taken me down that path. I just needed to upgrade some of the stuff at home, get a better microphone, get a ring light so it didn't look like I was counteracular with my face in darkness. It's kind of on the wall behind me because the light was a strange pattern. We need to adapt and work with it. it. goes back to what some of my greatest mentors have said. You know, technology is doing what it's supposed to do. When you are no longer cognizant of the technology and you're doing what you were meant to do. You and I are having a conversation. We're not thinking about the fact that we are on Zoom or Google Meet or whatever we ended up using here. We had a normal for a while and then COVID hit. And so we were thinking about creating a new normal and then there was going to be a new and better normal. And finally, we got to the point of saying let us look for something that builds off of this and stop trying to go back by creating some hybrids that work for all of us. And for me, the, the real visionary people that I've admired and worked around in these last what is it now, about 20 months close to that? That has inspired me a lot. You know me well enough to know I'm not one that sits back and goes, I've always done it this way, so let's keep doing it. It's like, oh, I did that yesterday. Let's do something different tomorrow. Let's see if we can do it more creatively and better. So it's been a period of growth for a lot of us. But my heart aches for those people that have not been able to do that. And still, even at this point, are saying we just want to go back to normal. Because frankly, as so many of us, when we're honest, say to each other, normal before COVID was not all that great. We had a lot of social issues we were struggling with. There were a lot of teaching, training, and learning issues that we were struggling with. And I think this has given us a good opportunity. And for those of us who wanted to grasp it and ride those white waters, knowing you're going to fall out of the boat occasionally, but somebody will throw you a life raft. It's been a very stimulating period.
0: In, in a lot of the chapters, you use stories to emphasize the points that you're making. I was just curious of how you went about gathering those stories. Lots and lots of interviews. And
1: it goes back to when Laurie and I wrote the first book, which you alluded to a little earlier. I realized early on that I did not want to do tape recordings and spend hours and hours on transcription. Fortunately, technology caught up to my desire at the time we did that first book a decade ago. So in this one, it was the same process. I would set up interviews with people. We would use typed chat. So there was no uh, opportunity for the interviewees to make comments, quote unquote, off the record, verbally and say, Oh, I didn't mean to say that. The process would be that we'd set up a shared document. I would type in a question while they were answering. I'd be looking at their answer, reviewing previous answers. And I tell you that the process was just fabulous because while they were thinking through what they wanted to say and coming across exactly the way they wanted to come across, I could go back and see those nuggets that in a spoken interview into a tape recorder, you never have the chance to go back to unless you do a follow-up interview. So while they're doing their, their next answer, I could go back and see gaps in what they had. And we would circle back and where it got really fun, because it was typed chat, which produced a transcript immediately, was I would refer them back to a previous paragraph and say, I'm going to drop a follow-up question in there, go back up there. And it gave us a narrative flow that is not natural to the spoken process that you and I are doing for this interview. That was a, a great eye-opener. Lori and I developed that for ourselves when we did the first book, and I took it to quantum leaps for the second book. So the interviews were always at our max. I would have some set questions, and I was always happiest when we would go off track and set aside the set questions and explore what they were saying and what they wanted to get across.
0: Before we get to our last question about the book, I wanted to make a quick Diversion over and ask you about the other podcast that you do regularly, TIA's for Training, which is hosted by Maurice Coleman, who's been on this show a couple times as well. I guess two part question: What do you hope listeners get out of that show, and what do you get out of that show?
1: I hope listeners get stimulated by the themes that we're exploring. We want to try to incorporate some of those themes into their own work. We're all trainers on that show, and trainers want to have transformation. If you do a training and nothing changes, in a way, that's the hugest failure. With a conversation like that, you want transformation that leads to something positive. And I think oftentimes we do get to that point. What I want to get out of it is I enjoy the camaraderie of the people that come and go on that show. There's a, obviously a core group of us. I, I really do think, Steve, that you need to start carving out your Thursday evening to be part of a regular conversation there because you would just fit right in and we could do some more crossovers. We'll let you do a prepare. But personally, what I get out of it is the simulation of colleagues who are thoughtful and funny any referent and make me think and look at things differently than I would without them. It's Thursdays, nine o'clock Eastern, six o'clock. Well, I want to say Western, but that isn't the right time. Yes, we have our own Western times on here. Pacific, that was the term I wanted. Even I can do that. Pacific time, folks. It's every other week. And thank you for asking about it because it is lovely.
0: So, the last thing I wanted to ask about the book, it's called Change the World Using Social Media. If a library is not really involved with social media much at all, how can they get started? to change the world. Anybody,
1: libraries, librarians, anybody outside that industry that wants to use social media effectively and they have in mind the goal of making social change needs to start small. You ask two or three basic questions. Where's our audience? Is our audience on Twitter? Is it on Facebook? Is it on TikTok? And you start there. You do not put yourself on a platform that nobody else is using because then you're just howling at the moon when the moon is not even visible in the sky. So first, find out where people are. Second thing is get comfortable with it. Third thing is understand that there will be belly flops. You know, you're not going to run into this and just do a beautiful swan dive off the 10-foot tall, 10-meter up in the air, diving board into the waters. There will be those painful times when you recently did something that embarrasses you. And at that moment, embrace it. Say, okay, I didn't mean to do that. I'm really sorry. I offended somebody with this. I'm learning from this. And you move on and don't let people drag you down. There is a mantra that somebody years ago among my colleagues said, which is fail to learn. And I love the double-edged sword of that. The one side of it is fail to learn, meaning, of course, you don't learn anything. That's not what you want. But the more important part of that is when you fail, you learn from that. And that's the important thing in social media. When something goes wonky, acknowledge it, apologize for it if that's necessary, and move on and don't let people drag
0: you down. You know, we were talking about how to get started, but knowing when to get out, too, because you're not recommending people go set up MySpace and Friendster pages and stuff now because that's that's (laughs) just not the thing. And ALA was on Second Life way past the time needed to be on there because it's like nobody's on. What are you doing (laughs) still over there?
1: A couple of years ago, an organization I'm part of with ostensibly some of the top trainers in our industry. They did a big thing where they were going to be talking about technology that they're using, the social media. And so I went to that because I was all ears. I was in the middle of writing the book. And one of the presentations was on the value of Second Life. This is only two or three years ago. And I oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Second Life came and went almost a decade ago. And you're proposing to your group of people that they look at that. There may be something going on there. But I'll tell you, folks, we're way down the road from that right now. And there are much better things that are offshoots of Second Life that we should be looking at. We need to be malleable. Those things that are working for us and putting us in touch with our audiences, because that's where they are. That's where we start to focus on. We need to be aware of the new things coming up. I will disparage until the cows come home certain platforms out there that I just don't see use for because they don't add anything for what I do and the people I serve. But the minute my perceptions change, I'll do a 180 degree turn and jump into that. But I realize that gets me toward a goal that's good for me and the people
0: I serve. And that's what it's all about, is the people that we serve. That is. Um, so, Paul, thank you so much for coming back on the show. If listeners want to um, follow up with you, how can they get in touch with you? Easy. Are you on social media, Paul? You know,
1: I've heard of it. <laughs> I'm very active on Facebook. I'm very active on Twitter, and I'm very active on LinkedIn. I will play with other things as as time allows. Easiest thing is just put my name into Google and add San Francisco. I, I come up pretty regularly and easily there. And again, the email address if anybody wants to reach me directly is paul at paulsignorelli.com. And you made some examiners, figure out how to spell. Which by the way, answer key, S-I-G-N-O-R-E-L-L-I. But you knew that because you saw the promo for this,
0: from Steve. So thank you, Steve. Wonderful. Yes, just with you. Look at the show title. It has Paul's name right there. <laughs> oh my God. I'm going to be up in lights again. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Paul. And the book is called uh, Change the World Using Social Media. Yeah, it's out of
1: Roman Littlefields, and I hope you support it. A lot of heart went into that. And as you said, Steve, the stories in there are really, it's not me. It's the stories I managed to capture and put into that book that are the heart of that book.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You're welcome. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guest, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening, and keep circulating your ideas. Thanks again to this episode's sponsors, Candlewick Press and Syndetics Unbound.